We'll hear argument next this morning in case 09-581, Flores VR versus United States. Mr. Hubachek. Mr. Chief Justice, <clears throat> and may it please the Court. In when the Court approved the imposition of a legitimation requirement only upon fathers of non-marital children born abroad, that was based on biological differences between men and women. It provided proof of parentage and proof of an opportunity to make a relationship with the child that adhered in birth as to the mother. But here, the residential requirements that are at issue here have no biological basis. They set up barriers to the transmission of citizenship by younger fathers, but not younger mothers, and they're based upon gender stereotypes that women, not men, would, carry, would care for non-marital children. That scheme has been tried — the Solicitor General has attempted to justify that scheme by claiming that Congress was concerned about statelessness, but the record doesn't support that claim. Both the, the 1935 Law Review article — what separates a stereotype from a reality? Do, do, do you say it is, it is not true that if there is a legitimate, illegitimate child, it is much more likely that the woman will end up caring for it than that the father will? What I'm saying That's not true? I think it is more likely, but I think that empirical evidence has not carried the day in gender discrimination cases. In all in the cases, it, it is true in general, but there are people who don't fit the mold. That, that's, so a stereotype is true for maybe the majority of cases. It just means that you say — this is the way women are. This is the way men are. Absolutely. And this is actually beyond just an empirical stereotype. The, 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 at the congressional hearings, it was said that the woman is the sole legal parent of this child, totally excluding the man, it, which is, basically dates back to the notion of coverture, where men were completely out of the picture and, and women were the ones who were responsible. So in addition to the fact that, that the empirical portion of it, there's also just the notion that the legal parent was the woman. And that was specifically wasn't that, But wasn't that said uh, in, in relation to the, the principle that only that, — that where paternity was not established, the, the child would be regarded as having the citizenship of the mother under the law of virtually every country, if not every country at that time? Well, under the law of many countries, uh, that, that citizenship did go through the mother. But with respect to legitimation and this statute, Congress drew a distinction between all — um, all parents of — excuse me, all fathers of non-marital children and those who legitimate. This statute applies only to those who legitimate. The very, the very law review article that Congress relied upon, according to the Solicitor General, says that in the case of legitimation, citizenship goes through the father. So the bottom line is, is that the, the very scheme, the very article that they relied upon said that in one instance it goes through the mother, but in the instance of the people who are actually affected by this statute, those who legitimate, it goes through the father. And there are also a number of uh, situations under which mothers — until there's legitimation, it goes through the mother. It went through the mother in, un, under the law of virtually every country, right? I'd respectfully disagree. Um, at the time, uh, 1940, when the statute was passed, there were a number of situations where it wouldn't go through the mother. In China and Japan, if the father was merely known, it would not go through the mother. There were three dozen countries at this time, including the English countries and then those who followed its law, in which if, if their female citizen gave birth to a child somewhere other than in their country, citizenship would not travel through that that um, mother because of the, the laws of those particular countries. There are also stateless women. So in all of those situations, the, the citizenship would not go through the mother. It would have to go through the father. And this statutory scheme doesn't in any way provide for that. The scheme also creates severe risks of statelessness, as is set out in the Statelessness Scholar's Brief, for married fathers. If a married father who's married to an alien the, uh, in those situations, there were a number of countries that would not allow the woman to transmit citizenship. So if the father was precluded by laws such as that were in the United States, that child would end up stateless as well. So there is substantial risk of statelessness, and it continues today. There are numerous countries that, that have re basically reinstituted that rule that if the father is merely known, citizenship would not transmit through the mother. And those are primarily in the Middle East and some of them in Africa, and those are also detailed in the Statelessness Scholar's Brief. Mr. Yubachek, how do you de deal with the argument that really this is a classification where the unmarried woman is being favored because the unmarried father 
is being bracketed with the married couples. So it's kind of like, what is it, Matthews v. Heckler, or that the, that the woman is getting a special favor and the unwed father is, is treated like most people, who, the married couples who have children. This is not a case where Congress was seeking to remedy any sort of past discrimination against women, as was the case, say, in, in Schlesinger versus Ballard. There was no discrimination against women. You know, the, up until very shortly before the statute was passed, it was clear under the State Department practices that the children of non-marital children of women did get women's citizenship. And it was also true as to men. So there was no discrimination that was being remedied in that situation. But that doesn't answer, I don't think, Justice Ginsburg's question, which is this appears to be an exception to a generalized non-gender-based requirement. Um, Couples, male or female, and fathers, unmarried fathers, are subject to five years. Only unmarried mothers get the largesse of one year. Why isn't — why shouldn't everybody just be put it to the broader category rather than extending a large S to a greater number of people. The reason is, Justice Sotomayor, is that this, we're not talking about an exception here, the treatment that the non-marital mothers were getting. That was the standard prior to the 1940, litigation, uh, 1940 legislation. There was no significant residence requirement. Then Congress imposed new residence requirements because it was concerned about the foreign influence in mixed marriages, meaning uh, someone who was married to an alien. In those situations, Congress specifically said in the record that they were concerned that when those children were born abroad, that they would have foreign influence, that they would be more foreign than they were American. But that's not — So doesn't the five-year residency requirement um, Uh, address that? If we apply it generally, wouldn't the five-year residency requirement honor Congress's concern about — there being a substantial tie to the states? Absolutely, it would. And that, but that concern is not applicable when you're talking about two U.S. citizen parents to whom the extended residence requirement didn't apply, non-marital mothers who are assumed to be the ones who are going to be raising the children without the influence of an alien father, the non-marital fathers are in the same category as those two. Those non-marital fathers who raise their children on their own, as petitioner's father did in this case, are not subject to that type of foreign influence. So they should be grouped together with the women and with the two citizen families because they have the lack of foreign influence. So it's only as to the mixed marriage couples who are married where there's a foreign influence problem and they're the ones to whom the expanded residence required. It was applied. Now, with respect to the um, uh, the, the Solicitor General has raised concerns about the, the plenary power doctrine, and I would argue that that doesn't apply here for a couple of reasons. First is, is that we're not talking about the admission of aliens. Second is, is that the Court in Chadha and Zadvitas has made clear that even when exercising that power, that congressional uh, limit, excuse me, Congress's power is limited by constitutional limitations. Now, with respect to the entry of aliens, Congress made it very clear in passing this very statute that they considered those people who gained citizenship as of birth to be differently situated than aliens. Uh, That was a tradition that dated back to 1350. Uh, In 1790, Congress passed a statute saying that children born abroad to citizens — Is this your — are you taking this in the direction of an argument that Congress — uh, gets less deference in determining nationality than it does with admission to aliens? Well, what I'm saying, Your Honor, is, is that we're talking about the ability of a United States citizen, petitioner's father, to transmit citizenship, and that that is a traditional interest. Citizenship is extremely important, and it's a tradition that citizens have been able to do so for years. So, yes, constitutional limitations should apply when, the, when Congress is drawing distinctions between men and women. So you, you, want, you want us to write an opinion that says Congress has less deference when considering — when it determines who should be a national of this country than it — than when it determines who should be admitted as an alien? Well, there is no tradition dating back to 1350 for the admission of aliens. It's — Are it's, you asking us to write that formulation in an opinion? 
Your Honor, what I'm saying is, is that the, the due process guarantee of equal protection is applicable in this context because the citizens so of the I, United if States. I, I, if I take that as, as a yes answer, what is your authority for that answer? It seems to me that it ought to be just the other way around. Well, Your Honor, my authority for that answer is the tradition that I've been discussing. Congress itself, in 1940, considered people who gained citizenship by birth abroad as being differently situated from aliens, aliens who naturalize. In fact, it said that it was universally Well, of course, uh, but it was Congress that made the distinction. But you're asking us to say that Congress has less authority over this essential issue as to who should be nationals of the United States. Well, I, I think — That's, that's, that's a — Maybe there's some authority for that. Do you have any authority? Is there something I can read that tells me that? Well, Chadhan's advice said that even though Congress has plenary power over the immigration power, when it exercises that power, it has to apply with constitutional limitations. This is the first one of the Court's cases where the well, Court — that wasn't — but that was an alien admissions case. You're talking about nationality. Right. I'm talking about citizenship being transmitted by a United States citizen. And what we're saying is, is that petitioner's father, as a United States citizen, has equal protection, uh, equal protection clause, protection against the discrimination here, because a similarly situated woman would be able to transmit citizenship. Well, sorry, go ahead. I finished. Are you finished? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, I didn't quite follow this. As I understand it, I'm say, I'm, what remedy will there be if you're right? Look, this is what I don't understand. A child is born abroad. One parent is American, the other is foreign. If the two are married, that child is American only if the father or the mother, one or the other, has lived in the United States for now at least two years, used to be more. Okay? Now it was five years uh, after the age of 16. Now suppose they're not married. And suppose the American is the father. Same rule. Now suppose they're not married. And the American is the mother. Now it's not five years or two years. You only have to have lived here for one year. Or I suppose I agree with you. I just don't see any sense to that whatsoever. I can't figure it out. They made a mistake about the immigration laws. I suppose I agree with you. Then why isn't the remedy say, okay, whether it is the father or the mother, the general rule applies. They have to have lived in the United States for five years or for two years, now two years. There, there are a couple of reasons, at least, for that, Your Honor. First is, is that there's a structural limitation here to imposing a leveling-down type remedy, because citizenship cannot be taken away once it's granted. So the Court can't remedy the problem. Right, some people were lucky, and they're already citizens under this. And there we are, because their mother lived in the United States for one year. Those already are citizens. Nobody's going to take that away. We're just looking at a statute. And in the first part of the statute, they have in Section G of 1401, the first rule I told you about. In 1409A, the second rule. In 1409C, the third rule. So you say, okay, if you're right about this and it's totally unfair and there's no good reason whatsoever for distinguishing on the basis of, of gender, we strike G. Okay? Now, that would seem to be normal, but that isn't going to help your client. So how, how do you get to some other thing that instead of striking G, what we do is strike all of A and then strike the whole thing before and shove them all into G, which isn't so easy to do with this language. How do you get there? Well, the first thing is, is that this statute contains a severability clause, very similar Fine. to — So we strike G. What I'm worried about is you want me to strike A — sorry, we strike C. And you want me to strike 1409A and strike 1401G and shove the people who are there into G, which is a little tough to do in the English language. But I want to know how you get there. By, by extension, Your Honor. And First, can you be clear about what you're saying? I thought your argument was you're not touching the married couples. That's correct. So that you're, you're talking about equating the unmarried father <coughs> to the unmarried mother. Do you have — is there any notion of how many people we're talking about? I mean, in these extension versus invalidation and the Court generally extends when there is a small class to be covered. The small class was left out. And a large class that's already covered. 
And the reasoning has been, well, my goodness, Congress wanted to take care of that logic less. It would be most destructive of the legislative will if we said you can't cover that logic class. So as the group of unmarried mothers, as against unmarried fathers, uh, do, you, do you have any notion of what the numbers would be? Justice Kimber, I don't have any uh, statistics to provide the Court. Uh, maybe I, this is — you'd like to answer Justice Breyer's question? Um, yes, Justice Breyer. The, Anyway, the remedy that we're requesting is extension. In uh, Westcott and in Heckler, the Court looked at language in the severability clause that was similar to this, and also in uh, Justice Harlan's concurring opinion in Welsh, and said that that type of language in a severability clause gives courts power to grant an extension remedy. So that's what we're requesting. We're requesting — Now, now there's another slight problem with that, I think. Uh, Reading this carefully, which I hope I've done, it seems to me it may also discriminate against fathers. And that's because C says that the woman has to have been physically present for a continuous period of one year. And I've read at least one article that says that word continuous doesn't appear with the fathers and that they really mean it. That is, if somebody's living down in Texas and they happen to go visit on Christmas their father, who is, or their grandmother or, some, or his cousin or something, who's across the border for five minutes, that they cannot take advantage of this Clause C. Is that true? I, I don't know the answer to that, Justice Breyer. I'll ask the SG that. But if it is true, uh, uh, if it is true, uh, then, then I would think that the fathers are really worse off. Now, I don't know if that helps you. And, and maybe it could turn out that that's really a problem. If it is really a problem, then the fathers are worse off. Does that help you with the remedy? Traditionally, in immigration law, when you have continuous requirements, if it's a short uh, trip, uh, casual trip, you know, then those that requirement is not considered to have been violated. Um, if the if I have to admit, I'm having a hard time following the question. The question is, I'm looking for a way. I'm trying to be helpful in my question. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking for a way that you could get to your result. Now, I'm not saying I'd do it, but I just want to know what the best way is of getting to that result where you shove everyone into C instead of just cutting C. Well, the, the, the best way is to follow the course tradition in the benefits cases, such as uh, Wengler and Wiesenfeld, where the court granted an extension remedy and basically treated well, — That would help you. Is there, is there a reason for doing that? Well, the reason for doing that is, is that the language that's contained in the severability clause is similar to what the court has already said allows an extension remedy. And the, the other problem is, is that if the court doesn't grant an extension remedy, it leaves petitioner basically without a remedy, that there will be individuals who — No, he would have a remedy. The, the remedy for an equal protection violation is to treat everybody the same. You can do that either by lowering the people who are given a benefit or by increasing the people who aren't. So he has a remedy. His objection is we're not being — my father and my mother are not being treated the same. That's all the relief he's entitled to. You're absolutely right that that is, that is the state of the law. And, and my point is, is that structurally that remedy is unavailable here because you can't take away the citizenship from the people who have already gotten it. And the, the notion that, that you can grant us prospective relief, uh, as was discussed in the Solicitor General's uh, brief, doesn't make any sense either because, number one, you know, this statute doesn't the, — the one we're talking about today doesn't apply past people who were born uh, before 1986. But the thing is, is if somebody were to come into court after uh, an opinion that that said just that were issued, someone were to come into court and say, um, I want to claim citizenship through my mother, uh, that person would still be entitled to citizenship because it's as of the date of birth. So this is a retroactive provision. So the prospective relief notion really doesn't make any sense in this context because the equal protection violations have basically all already occurred at the time that the person who would make a citizenship claim was born. And we would still be left in a situation where petitioner's father would say that I was unable to transmit citizenship to my son and a woman who was similarly situated was able to. So that type of remedy is unavailable. In the court's decision in Iowa um, versus Bennett, uh, the bank case, they actually ordered a refund of the taxes that were collected in a discriminatory manner dating back in time. So if you could factor out — if you could make a a relief that would take away the benefit that others had received, then I would agree that that's available. That's not possible in this situation. Mr. Ubercheck, I think the the chief asked you 
and if it's an equal protection violation, then the court just says it violates equal protection. But whether it goes up or down, the court has to give a temporary solution because the legislature can't be convened on the spot. And the court actually did go through that exercise, extension versus invalidation, most conspicuously in Califano um, Westcott, in the Westcott case. It said, yes, that's what we've been doing in all these cases. In uh, Sharon Frontiero's case, we didn't say, you've been discriminated against. Congress, you fix it. We said, you get the quarter's allowance that up until now has been available only to male officers in Weisenfeld. The father got the same child and care benefits as the mother. So the court was making a decision for extension. It recognized it had to do that. Absolutely. And in many of the benefits case, the same, the same analysis was available, and that's the analysis that we're asking that the court apply here. But we're also Mr. Hubachek, you, you are asking, I think, that uh, the court pronounce your client to be a United States citizen. Isn't, isn't that the only pronouncement from, from a court that is going to do your client any good? Well, uh, Justice Scalia — Unless he's a United States citizen. I mean, this is a criminal case, so technically what we're asking is for a reversal of the judgment and an opportunity to present or, this — Or a reversal of the judgment on the grounds that your client is a United States citizen. Right? That it would be possible for him on these facts to become a United States citizen, yes. That he is a United States citizen. That he is, not that, 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 that he is. Do you have any other case where, where a court has conferred citizenship on someone who, under the statutes as written, does not have it? Well, that was one of the issues that was debated, of course, in the Wynn and Miller cases, and yeah. the court has not said that yet, but it can in this You've case. never done it. That's correct. That's correct. But it can in this case for a number of reasons. Number one is the fact that this severability clause is applicable to this claim. Congress actually passed a statute, 1421D, in this same statutory scheme that said when we're talking about naturalization, the naturalization of aliens, then you cannot get naturalization under those circumstances any other way than what's set out in this statute. They didn't say that as to claims of citizenship as of birth. So there's a negative implication, basically, that they, that they were not precluding this type of remedy as to a citizenship claim where we're claiming an equal protection violation. The, the second point is, is that if the Court is unable to, to grant that remedy, that would leave an equal protection violation in place. And as Justice uh, Harlan made clear in Welsh, no, un, 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 unless unless we we uh, uh, solve the violation uh, the other way by saying that uh, uh, the uh, father gets the shorter period that the that the, uh, that the mother has. Well, again, I'm I, sorry that the mother gets the longer period that the father has. Right, and, and I think that the court. And you say we can't apply that retroactively. Well, okay, we don't apply it retroactively. Uh, the people that have. Uh, have citizenship cannot constitutionally be deprived of it. But for well, everybody even, else, it's okay. Even prospectively, Your Honor, because this statute says you have citizenship as of birth. So even if the Court were to render that decision and someone were to make a claim, they could still say, I had citizenship as of birth, i.e., whenever I was born, which was before the Court's uh, decision. So there really, that would be no remedy at all. It's but, a remedy. But any of the, of the remedies that you're discussing with Justice Scalia, uh, in, involves this court in a highly in, in intrusive exercise of the congressional power. Let me just ask you this as an analytic matter or as a matter of logical priorities. We usually talk about substance first, remedy second. Uh, do you think it's permissible logically for us to say that because the remedies here are so intrusive, that bears on our choice of whether or not we use intermediate or rational basis scrutiny, and because the remedies are so difficult, we're going to use rational basis scrutiny. Is that a logical way to proceed? I don't think so. I think the Court has traditionally said that the, the questions of a right and whether or not there exists an, an opportunity to make a claim and the remedy for it are analytically distinct. So I don't believe — And it also said that the remedy can't be complicated because the Court's not set up to do that. I mean, that's what Westcott said. The court can go one way or the other way. It can't do any fine-tuning because it's there as a temporary legislature. The ball goes back to Congress to do what it will, but it's just in the interim. We need a solution. 
That's correct. And certainly Congress could do that. And the Solicitor General's brief makes clear that what was being balanced here was concerns about, (laughs) according to them anyway, concerns about statelessness on the one hand and connection to the United States on the other. If Congress hadn't assumed, uh, based on gender stereotypes, that men weren't caring for children, then it would have — it would have been able to put them in the same category as women because they would understand that both of them would be caring for children. And it's not just the, you know, this, the, the situation in 1940. As time has gone on, I believe in the, in the National Women's Center brief, it points out that the number of men who are raising children in single-parent families has been increasing over time. So the problem, if anything, is getting worse. But Congress did make at least some change, right, in this, this is — it's no longer five years. It's only two years, right? The, the, the current system is five years, two years after the, the age of 16. I'm sorry, after the age of 14. And, of course, that age requirement here completely precluded uh, Mr. Uh, Flores Villar's father from being able to transmit citizenship uh, because of his age. That kind of complete preclusion would never apply to a woman who is similarly situated. The Court doesn't have any questions. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Needler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress, in deciding who among the various people born abroad should be made citizens of the United States, has to take into account myriad factors that may bear on that question in its judgment. They include, importantly, Congress's prediction in the case of conferring citizenship at birth, what will be that person's likely connection to the United States. Congress also has to consider the interaction with the laws of other countries where these people may be born. It may take into account equities, potential statelessness, or dual nationality. These are complicated questions to which the courts should defer. Now, in in the particular — Well, intermediate scrutiny um, is not without some deference. Excuse me. Unless we apply strict scrutiny, which no one is arguing for, um, the question is, is it rational basis deference or is it some intermediate scrutiny? Yes. And and, and we we believe that uh, under um, this Court's decisions, and particularly Fiala versus Bell and the cases discussed in that case, that uh, it should be rational basis scrutiny. Well, but you can't really mean that. Because we can put a hypothetical that's very simple, and then you'll explain to me why um, a U.S. citizen should be burdened in this way. And the hypothetical is, let's assume Congress determines that there are too many foreign-born children of U.S. citizens coming into the United States, and that those foreign-born children, um, those born of women, are placing a greater burden on our economic system. They need more care for reasons that Congress determines analytically or statistically. They're spending more money of more government money. Um, And Congress passes a rule that says only the foreign-born children of men can come into the country, not of women. Wouldn't that be a rational basis? I think the the answer to that question lies in the Court's formulation of the test that is applied in this particular context, and that is the formulation drawn from Kleindienst versus Mandel that was articulated in Fiala versus (coughs) Bell, and that is that there has to be a facially legitimate a bona fide reason. I think that — There is a facially legitimate — It's not — I think the Court could have no trouble concluding that an arbitrary choice uh, between men and women uh, having no bearing — What what other — what's arbitrary about a government saying, I want to spend less money on on a new citizen? The ultimate reason may — the ultimate reason may be legitimate, but I think the facially legitimate test also encompasses means, not just end. And if Congress is just arbitrarily choosing between men and women or people of different race, I think, given this Court's uh, tradition, it could conclude that, th- that those would be impermissible bases under the, under the well-established test. But for the reasons we say in our brief, Which is we don't the well-established test? Uh, Fiala versus Bell for, for the for uh, and 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 the cases uh, underlying it, and we al- we also think of, uh, is that the rational basis plus test you're talking about? It, you could you could call it that, or you could call it uh, so the facial illegitimate. Now, now we're going to just continue sort of 
tweaking the definitions and creating more no, I don't think variations I, on, on our review standards? I, I think it is, a, it, is, it is a test that this Court has articulated in Fiala versus Bell and Kleindienst versus Mandel to address this very situation, including the situation where asserted constitutional rights of U.S. citizens in this country are, are being claimed. And we agree with Justice Kennedy that, that the uh, standard should not be more demanding, but rather, if anything, should be less demanding, where the question is whether well, someone will be made a citizen. It, it, it's hard here because both the father, this father, but many fathers and mothers are actually U.S. citizens who want to bring their children over as U.S. citizens. So if the father was making the claim here, you would still argue it was a rational basis test, even though he's a U.S. citizen entitled to all the protections of the Constitution. We would argue for the facial illegitimacy. Is that a claim? That was the case. That was the case in Fialo, which in which the plaintiffs included U.S. citizens, children, and fathers, claiming that in, in a very parallel situation, claiming that uh, that uh, special privileges for illegitimate children to reunite with the mother. Uh, worked an unconstitutional di- discrimination against the fathers of such children. And, uh, and it was U.S. citizen fathers and children who were among the plaintiffs. And the Court nonetheless said that this, this is — there is no constitutional right to pass citizenship. This is a question of Congress's judgment about who it believes should be made citizens. And one of the important factors Congress has looked at is connection to a U.S. citizen. That is, in turn, a proxy for what the le- likely — connection to the United States right, will it, be. That's, uh, I understand that. But what you're doing is applying a lesser standard to gender discrimination than is ordinarily applied to gender discrimination. Now, is there any reason to do that? I think that was the thrust of the question. Well, but yeah, that, that was the issue. All right. Now, fine. You, would you, if, it, if it's the government's position, you do. Does the same thing apply to racial discrimination? Again, you also we, apply a lesser standard to racial I, discrimination. I, I, I think the facially legitimate standard in Fiala versus Bell would, would render uh, a reliance uh, on race. Uh, 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 this suddenly is cutting a big hole in the 14th Amendment. No, I, I, which, I, I don't think so, because I think that same principle w- would be given effect. In, First, in, the, in, in, in Fiala, we were, we were dealing not with citizens. This is uh, s- someone a resident, it could be a resident alien wanting to bring in uh, a parent or a child. So it wasn't that, — that case wasn't about who was the citizen at birth. It, it, uh, it wasn't, but in the eyes of the Constitution, anyone born abroad is an alien un- unless and until Congress has passed a statute making them a citizen. So analytically, doctrinally, it is the same question. And the, the, uh, but here, here Congress has passed, has passed a statute it, making certain people citizens, and the question is, has it done so in a way that is, is compatible with equal protection? But remind me, too, because it's not in the front of my head. I thought the classification that was dealt with in Fiala, um, wasn't it unwed parentage rather than gender? But, but the, the, the claim the, — there were claims based on both illegitimacy and gender, uh, and, there, and the, the, uh, there were equal protection claims based, uh, based on both. Um, but uh, if, if I could move on to the way that the, way the statute operates, because we think it, it, it satisfies uh, uh, either standard of review in this case. And if I could just step back for, for a moment. As I mentioned, there are a number of factors that Congress takes into account in crafting a statute like this. 1401 — uh, deals with married couples, and when, where both parents are citizens, all that is required is that one of the parents have resided in the United States uh, prior to the birth. Where you have mixed parentage, the uh, background of the enactment of this in 1940 and reenactment in 1952 and continued up to this present day is Congress was concerned that such a child may not have the requisite connection to the United States, may have a connection to the parent, but may not have a connection to the United States, such that Congress wanted to grant citizenship to that person. So what Congress did in the mixed citizenship situation was to require prior residency of the parent as a, as a talisman, as the Court said in Rogers versus Belli, for a connection to the United States of 10 years, five years after the age of 14. Congress has liberalized that, but that was the basic thought. Um, where you have uh, unwed parents, uh, in, in 1409A, what Congress did was to f- 
follow general principles of the law of illegitimacy or children born out of wedlock. If a father legitimates a child, then it is as if the child was born out of marriage — in a marriage, and the rule in 1401 with respect to marriage applies. That is true whether both, both parents are citizens or in a mixed marriage situation. If, if a, a father legitimates a child and both parents are citizens, then, the, then not the one — then the, the child benefits from the rule that if either parent was present in the United States before birth is a citizen. Uh, doesn't have to satisfy the more — the one-year uh, uh, unbroken residency requirement under 1409C. For, uh, for — if it's uh, mixed parentage and the father legitimates, then the rule applicable to married mixed citizen parents uh, applies, uh, and — and uh, as if the child had been married at the outset. It's a perfectly um, sensible and uh, — provision or approach and consistent with the way this has been done. What Congress did with respect to the um, — to the mother of a child born out of wedlock where there has not been uh, — may not have been legitimation is to confer citizenship on the basis of a, a one-year residency. Now, as counsel for the petitioner explains, a mother in that situation who, at the moment of birth, as this Court understood uh, in Nguyen, that, that mother may be the only either legal parent or the only parent at the moment of birth with the requisite connection to the child to have an opportunity for the sort of connection at birth. So the, the mother in that circumstance is very much like the two-citizen parent family. The only parents are parents with a connection to the United States. Mr. Needle, if, if the classification then were that uh, we want to encourage, because it's good for society, father-child relationships. So we're going to give that uh, advantage that is one year for fathers, and we're going to put the mothers together with the married couples. Would that be compatible with equal protection? Well, I, um, I think that would be — that would depend upon a, a, a different uh, rationale. I mean, here what Congress — I told you what the rationale was. The rationale was we have lots of statutes nowadays, like the um, Family Medical and Leave Act, that attempt to uh, encourage fathers to have a relationship with their children, to be an equal parent. So that's the rationale of this classification. They want to encourage the father-child relationship. Therefore, they give this one year — is enough for the for the father, and uh, every, everything else is the same except it's the father who gets the one year and mother who gets the um, what is it ten years and five. Years. I think that would be a more difficult question because Congress would be would be um, uh, responding based on the on on the um, expected behaviors and talents maybe of men and women. What's different here is that's not what is that's, — that's not the basis for this classification. This class no, it's, it's, it would be, in fact, acting on the basis of what hasn't been the general pattern, but what is becoming a new pattern. Right. And, and, and in that situation, uh, Congress, I think, could be expected and maybe should be required to do that in a gender-neutral basis because it is premising it on the, on the behavior. But, but what's so, — so, so there is, even though we're still dealing with citizenship, you recognize that there are categorizations that would run afoul of equal protection. Well, that, and, and the question would be whether that's a facially legitimate uh, uh, rationale. And, and I, I would want to know — I think I would want to know more about what the record for, for such a justification would be, uh, et cetera. But I, but I, I would like the to — The same as in the Family Medical Leave Act, making it a parental leave instead of as it had been historically um, a maternity leave. Right. And in that situation, I think it would be expanding on a gender-neutral basis rather than, uh, rather than singling out one parent uh, or the other. Um, but but I, I would like to finish the description that I have because it's incomplete and there's a critical piece left out, and that is that counsel for petitioner says that if, uh, if a father legitimates uh, an out-of-wedlock child, he is in the same position or that that child is in the same position as the child of an out-of-wedlock mother. And that is not likely to be so, and it's not likely to be so at birth, and this is the reason why, is when the child 
is legitimated, there are two parents who have the strong connection that was described in this Court's decision in Nguyen to that child, the U.S. citizen father, but also the mother, the alien mother in the other country. So you have two parents whose interests have to be taken into account. Whereas in the, in the situation Congress was addressing in 1409C, the situation of the child born out of wedlock where there was no, uh, at the moment of birth, likely to be no recognized father, you have only the mother. And if, if, we, if we think of this in, in parallel to the illegitimacy, ca- the, the cases involving illegitimacy that, the, that this Court has had in the domestic context, I think that's instructive. In a case like Lair, where the question was whether the father of a child born out of wedlock should have received notice of a prospective adoption. The Court explained in that case that the father has not taken the steps necessary to form the relationship with the child and therefore uh, be, be a father in the eyes of the law, then the mother alone gets so you to look, make you look at, And we have the briefs that are filled with, you know, pros and cons about the statelessness business and whether it was real. And I've read those, and I'd like your comment on those, but I want to comment, too, on this very — what may be a very minor thing, but I did notice, prodded by an article, I have to say, that that, that for the women there's a sense in which it's tougher. Yes. And that's because of the continuous period. Now, I guess it depends on how that's enforced, but there could be a class of people, say, living in the border near Canada or near Mexico, where they just step across the border on Christmas Day to say hello to my cousin. And, and does that stop them from taking advantage of that? Is it, in other words, how is this enforced? Is it enforced it, it, with it, that rigidity? It, do, it does have to be continuous residence, and you are correct. Which means you can't stop well, I, across I, the border. You there, can't there go may, on Christmas. There may be very ni- minor exceptions where you go, go across the border on Christmas Eve. That I can't is there, is there a, you Well, is there or isn't there, to your knowledge? Uh, is this enforced with total rigidity, or is it enforced that maybe you could go once a month, or you could go on your birthday, or, or, or what is the I, I, answer I think, to that? I think in that situation, no. In the example that I was in given — that situation, when, you cannot go across if, the border? The, the, the example I was given when I asked this question yes. was, if you have somebody who's on — who lives in Mexico and commutes to the United States, yeah. what, you know, five days a week, you can — under — under uh, — under 1401, you can add up each day — uh, and get to uh, a total of five or ten years of continuous uh, — excuse me — of actual physical presence. That would not satisfy the continuous — All right. So if it's tough, then, and really is meant to be tough, then there is a ration — what is the rationale for treating women in this respect worse than treating men? Uh, Congress, the, the one-year the one provision is, is — The one-year — I grant you the time one year — is treating them better than the time five years. But the word continuous, if it's really tough, is what your answer leads me to believe. And they really mean it. I mean, uh, then that's treating them worse than treating the men. And I'd like to know what is the rationale for treating them worse? Congress selected uh, something because the — the, while I said the mothers are like the two-citizen family or two-citizen parents in the sense that only U.S. citizens are the parent and you have some connection, Congress was balancing the duration of that connection uh, or taking into account the duration of that connection, and it chose to make it a little bit tougher. Uh, uh, and and I, I think that's perfectly legitimate because Congress — because you only have one parent, and Congress was deciding, well, if, if somebody's been here for a continuous period of one year — then there, then, then there is probably a greater likelihood that that person will, will have roots here than, for example, the other situation where if you had a, a child born abroad and came home in the summers, um, that child may not think of himself or may not be regarded as an American in the same way. So what Congress was doing was focusing on a, long, a period of longer duration, which in its judgment could, could uh, give rise to it, uh, Congress believed, a greater connection uh, to the United States. Counsel, what if, if the Court were to determine that this does violate the Equal Protection Clause, and the Court were also to determine that this is not a case that should be the first one in history in which it grants naturalization, what do you think the Court ought to do? I, I think the Court ought, ought to um, uh, strike the uh, eligibility of, of uh, anyone to get citizenship on the basis of one year. I think it could, should constrict the, uh, the class to those specifically governed by 1401. Um, on the ground that it violates equal protection. And it's a solution. To, it is a and, remedy. Well, what about your friend's point that that 
retroactively deprives people of citizenship that we would be saying they should have gotten if the Equal Protection Clause had been enforced? I, I, I think this Court could legitimately take into account the, the conferral of citizenship and the reliance on that. I think it's parallel to, uh, to Heckler versus Matthews, where the Court uh, upheld a statute in which Congress uh, took account of reliance interests that had built up under well, right. But here, of course, under my scenario, we don't have a situation where Congress has addressed address the problem. Um, so what do we do if somebody who, under the theory that we say this person should not have been denied citizenship because of the unequal protection uh, in the law, and he comes in, it's the same situation, he's going to be deported for not being an American citizen, and he says, I'm an American citizen. I think, I think that, the right — Does he get the benefit of that or not? No, I think he does not. I think, I think the answer is that — and, and uh, partly for the reasons that, that you alluded to and Justice Scalia mentioned, we, we do not think that a court can properly grant uh, U.S. citizenship and that that should enforce — excuse me, inform the remedy. And it, but for the people who have been granted citizenship, I think the solution would be to in, invalidate the one-year uh, but why, why, why would we grant that remedy when it doesn't do this petitioner any good whatever? It's, it's a remedy that doesn't remedy. Well, I, we're, I, I we're, suppose, we're not I suppose, in the habit of granting relief that doesn't provide relief. And I suppose, I suppose the Court could, could decide that at the outset, that it would not be appropriate to grant that relief and not go, and not go any further. But the reason it doesn't grant that relief is somewhat unusual in this case. It only doesn't grant him relief because of the third party standing. He doesn't care whether they're treated equally or not. He just wants to be, claim the benefit of citizenship. The person where, where he would get relief is if it were the father, because the relief that he's entitled to is to be treated equally. That's it. The relief this person is asking for is not to be deported. And so the problem of the relief being granted is really complicated by the fact that it's a case of third-party standing. Right. I, I, I agree with that as well, which I think is all the more reason for the Court to be cautious about, about entering into this. I, 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 I think Mr. Needler, in answering the question that way, I know you're familiar with the Weisenfeld case. And the question was, uh, this was a, uh, a father who was denied benefits to take care of a of a child whose mother died in childbirth. And the court uh, came out with a unanimous judgment, but it split three ways on why. And one of the members of the court said, uh, this is discrimination against the child, even though the classification was, it's called a mother's benefit. It's discrimination against the child because it should make no difference at all whether the missing parent is female or male. That that was utterly irrational. That was the chief, that was then Justice Rehnquist's uh, concurring opinion in Weisenfeld. So he seemed to think that the discrimination was against the child and that that counted for equal protection purposes. Well, here the only claim that has been raised is an equal protection violation of the parents. Well, that's right. what Stephen Weisenfeld, the father, was the, was the plaintiff. But the, the court's, at least one justice's rationale was that the discrimination is really against the child, but the father can raise, well, it, raise it. It is, insofar as any claim of discrimination by the child, I think, since it's not based on the child's gender, I think that would clearly be a rational basis or, or a facially legitimate standard. And, and Justice O'Connor's opinion in, in Miller versus Albright addressed uh, the rational basis there. And here, this is not just based on the gender of the parent. It's based on the, on the complexities in the legal history with respect to uh, illegitimacy um, and, and, and how children born out of wedlock are dealt with, which, again, turns not on, on stereotypes about behavior or talents, but on, but on longstanding legal regimes, not just in this country, but in, in other countries, that until the father uh, does something to have a meaningful relationship, the mother is the, is the only legal parent, or in the terminology of this Court's decision in Nguyen, the, the, the parent who's likely to have the meaningful relationship. Once the father comes forward in a case like Lair, uh, the, the result is not that the father gets a veto power or that the fa- only the father's interests are taken into account. The answer is that you have that's two the, parents that's whose, case, whose That was a case where mother versus father. But here, it's, it's — a single parent 
this is not a case where the father is doing something that the mother regards as disadvantageous. That was in the Lair case. No, I'm not. Dealing with it. And you said something about this has nothing to do with stereotypes. This is the way the law was. But wasn't the law shaped because of the vision of the world of being divided into married couples where the father is what counted and unwed mothers where she was, they said, both father and mother because the law didn't regard him as having any kind of obligation? Well, I, I, again, I think this is the issue the Court addressed in Nguyen, in which the Court, the court said that there is, a, there is a difference at the moment of birth in the potential and, therefore, the likelihood of a, of a connection of child to parent at the moment of birth that justified the requirement that the, that the father take a step to legitimate the child in order to, to be able to, ha- to be on an equal footing with the mother with respect uh, to, to the rights. Uh, and here, the residency requirement is what measures the connection of the parent to the United States, not the child to the parent. But we think the same point obtains, that at the moment of birth in another country, for example, uh, another country might take the same view that this Court took in Nguyen and, and Lair in cases like that, that the father does not have a meaningful connection to the child in, in the sense that one would predict citizenship on the basis of, until there had been some formal steps, which would happen after birth, to establish the relationship with the child. If it was constitutional for Congress to do that in the when, it's constitutional for Congress to take into account that other countries might do the but very when, same when thing. I thought that the Court relied on the biological factor, which is not so here. I mean, here's no, no question that this is the a natural parent of the child. Well, uh, yes, but, it, but in the when, the Court did not look at the circumstances of the particular case. It, it looked it looked uh, generally to what would have justified Congress's acting categorically, as we think Congress has to have the flexibility to do. And, and I, I think the questions in these statutory provisions show that there are numerous competing equities and considerations that have to be taken uh, into, into account. And that, that, is what, uh, that is what Congress um, did here with respect to establishing the, uh, the, uh, the requiring a close nexus uh, to the United States. And if if in another country uh, a father has, uh, has uh, legitimated or done those steps, then you have a, a U.S. citizen mother and a father in another country that is directly parallel to the married mixed, uh, mixed parent marriage. Uh, and Congress was concerned about whether that child was going to be sufficiently affiliated with the United States to justify a, a conferral of citizenship. Counsel, if we determine that the only remedy we can impose is to equalize up, in other words, add to the, benefit, the burden on the mother rather than relieving the father of it. Do you have authority for the proposition that we can address that issue uh, hypothetically, in other words, without making a decision on the equal protection question on the merits? I'm, um, in other words, look ahead, and if you say, look, the only remedy we're going to be able to give this person is a remedy that isn't going to benefit him regardless of how the merits are decided, therefore we don't reach the merits. I, 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 don't have a, I don't have authority from, from a decision in this Court. I may, I may be uh, not recalling something. Um, I don't, but I, but I do believe in the special context, context of citizenship that, that there might be a justification for the, uh, for the Courts uh, doing that. Well that, well, that that would be, in effect, saying that we have no jurisdiction because there's no standing, because you're, you're, there's, there, there's no remediation that the Court can make. I, I, uh, I, I suppose that would be one way of looking yeah. at it. I mean, the Court traditionally has looked at at, at questions of severability uh, at, as a question of remedy and not, and not at the outset. But this is, to be sure, a very peculiar situation. And I, I should also Mr. point Nieder, out — Mr. Nieder, in answer to the Chief's question, do you know — I mean, there have been a number of cases raising this extension versus nullification. And in every one of them, the Court did make a choice. It didn't say, well, we can't make any choice. Even in the one — was it um, Matthews v. Heckler? Yes. The court did make a choice, and it was the rare case where the court equalized uh, down. Um, but, but I don't know any one of them. No, I, I think that is ordinarily the case. But, it, but, but this is this is a difficult context, and just just to go back with a complication from the 
remedial approach that Chief Justice uh, suggested. If the Court declared an expansion of citizenship, uh, and, and if that was held to apply to everybody similarly situated rather than just uh, the petitioner in this case, it would raise questions about whether Congress would have the freedom, after such a declaration of a perhaps dramatic expansion of citizenship under the prior law, to remedy that with respect to people who, for the uh, — following this Court's decision, the lo- at least the logic of the Court's decision would suggest that they were citizens, too. Is there, is there anything rings a bell in this, in your mind, of — I mean, the, the thing that goes the other way is the right of, a, of, of an American citizen to pass his American citizenship on to his children. And when we talk about uh, — when we talk about Congress's power over naturalization, is there anything that's drawn a distinction between the general power, which are people who are not citizens to become citizens, but what it seems to me intuitively is a different situation, of the right to pass your citizenship on? Does that ring any bell no, at there, all? There is no such right, and, and Wong well, I'm not saying there's such a right. I just wonder if it rings any bell at all that this has ever been discussed in anything you've Well, the, uh, the Court's decision in, in — in, uh, the, the, the dissenters in, in, mm-hmm. in um, Nguyen uh, discussed this, but we mm-hmm. think it's clear that under this uh, — under Wong Kim Mark and, and Rogers uh, versus Belli, that, that that is an equally an exercise of Congress's naturalization power, which is subject to the same right, plenary just, standards. Just, just looking — just looking into trying to get your memory to — can you well, — does something come to mind the opposite way, that where the Court did go into a long exegesis about the law, uh, including constitutional law, and then says at the end, well, but you're not entitled to memory, uh, to a remedy, because of some other extraneous — This is going back to remedy. I don't — I don't, uh, don't specifically — Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Hubachek, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Justice. Um, the, the, the rationale that, this, that the Solicitor General's Office offers today is that, that further assumptions can be made that even after men do the things that the Court said were, were legitimately required of them, that they legitimate, that they have an opportunity to uh, form a relationship with their child, that further gender-based assumptions should be put into place and say that, well, but you're not going to be the real father or you're not going to be the real parent, whereas in, women, in the case of women, we're going to assume that when they have the non-marital child, they are going to be in charge, and that when a father legitimates and does whatever uh, is required and wherever the child was born, we're going to assume that the mother is involved still. But the very facts of this case demonstrate that that's not the case, that in this case, petitioner's father raised him and petitioner's mother uh, was not involved in his growing up, and, and he brought him to the United States. Uh, I'm sorry, I thought I was getting a question. So. It's basically piling further gender-related inferences on top of of the ones that are already in place in order to serve to justify this distinction. Now, with respect to the Fialo case, there is a tradition of allowing citizens to transmit citizenship. Fialo involved getting aliens into the United States. There's no tradition that dates back to 1350 where citizens have enjoyed rights to bring aliens into the United States, but it does date back to 1350 that you've been able to confer citizenship on your foreign-born children. So it is differently situated, and it's differently situated in the very structure of the statute that we're talking about today. Congress very specifically eliminated the ability of courts to change the rules of naturalization of aliens. It basically used language very similar to the court's decision in Ginsburg and said that you can be naturalized under this provision and no other way. It didn't say that as to citizens as of birth. Citizens as of birth are treated differently. There's a severability clause in the statute, so that would apply to them, and that brings into play all of the various uh, remedies that the Court has granted with respect to extension over the years. You uh, refer to — I'm sorry. You refer to the tradition of passing — you agree with Mr. Needler that there's no such right? I, I agree that, that the Constitution doesn't guarantee that right. Our, our point is, is that it, it's a traditional right, and Congress has always provided for it. Even in the period of, between 1802 and 1855, where the statute was strangely drafted and didn't provide for it, uh, this Court made clear in Montana versus Kennedy that when, the, when Congress remedied that situation, it made that remedy retroactive. So basically, we have an unbroken tradition dating back to 1350. That's why I think that this right should be treated differently than the questions of admissions of aliens uh, in Fialo. And, and again, there's also Chadha and Zedvitus that make clear that the Constitution limits 
the, the Congress's power, even in the context of naturalization. And then with respect to the third-party standing issue, the Court has granted a third-party standing to criminal defendants who are raising third-party constitutional issues in their criminal cases, and the same analysis should apply here. It, we can still look at the right from the perspective of petitioner's father, and if the Court grants a leveling down remedy, that would not remedy the situation the petitioner's father would be in, because both before and after the Court's decision, they, the children of women, similarly situated women, would be citizens, and petitioner's father's son would not. What, what were the criminal cases where there was a — where the — defendant was permitted to raise? Campbell and Powers. Uh, those are both cases where the, the criminal defendant asserted rights of — in one case, it's a pettit juror, and in the other case, it was a grand juror. And those — there were uh, discriminatory peremptory challenges in those cases and, and other issues, and the Court allowed those criminal defendants to assert those constitutional rights. Uh, you know, seven members of the court also found that they were standing in Miller. You know, Kowalski pointed out, and I think Craig versus Boren, that there's a very forgiving standard when the third party's rights are at issue in a case. Thank you, counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <laughs>